Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to church. My name is Mark. I'm uh, the rector here, senior minister, and it's uh, my great pleasure to. Um... Why are you giggling? Uh, it's my great pleasure to speak to you this morning um, and uh, open God's word. And think together about this text of scripture. It'll come beautiful. So, and and just to frame this, we're in this context. We're in this series um, uh, called uh, "God, Women, and the Healing of Humanity." And the reason this is, the reason we're doing this is because it just seems to me that. Uh, as we have a mission and a vision to be a blessing to the city of Sydney, to renew the city spiritually and socially and culturally, learning how to relate between women and men is massively important for all of us at every stage of life. And there's a lot of confusion out there, and there's a lot of confusion in the church, and so we're trying to unpack this and see how wonderfully affirming God is of women. And uh, so this morning, what we're doing is uh, we're looking at the topic of um, women as lovers. And we're going to talk about uh, women as lovers and the topic of human sexuality and God's vision for this. And I'm just looking around at the... You know, if there are teenagers here, you might not want to be sitting next to your mum right now. Or you might. Just saying, um, you, you could move to another part of the building, depending uh, on how much you squeam and squirm uh, as you talk about these things in your family. Um, and so we're going to have a bit of a, a discussion about this. And what we're going to try and do is think together about uh, a redemptive vision of human sexuality and God's vision of that and how that works out in our lives. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have a think together. Lord Jesus... Thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us. Um, thank you that by faith we know you're here with us, unlike Annie's friend's son, Tommy. We don't have to look for you under the pews because you're not there. You're here and, uh, and immediately present to us. So we thank you for that. And wherever we are on our spiritual journeys and wherever we are on our relational journeys, wherever we are on our experience of sex and sexuality and gender, may you uh, help us today to get a vision and to learn how to live out that vision of life in your kingdom uh, the good way you intended to be. And we ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Um, so women as lovers. Now, you might say this is a little odd that you're speaking about this, Mark, because you're clearly not a woman. Very observant. I'm not. But that's okay. So what I'm going to try and do very, very gently and respectfully is unpack firstly what our culture says about... So this is really about sex and sexuality. So this is really a broader topic, a, a frame, biblical framework on sexuality. Then I'll try and unpack what the Bible has to say and try and draw some connections and then land this in a place that is actually helpful. And, um, if, if, uh, and hopefully this will be really, really useful for all of us in our day-to-day -day lives and faith and families. So um, the first thing is, we've, the text was from Song of Songs, right? Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, Song of Songs, the title, Song of Songs, is this is like the song of all songs. This is the best song in the Bible. In fact, some of the rabbis say, if you had to lose all of the rest of the Bible, this is the one bit you wouldn't want to lose. Isn't that good? 
It's Hebrew love poetry. It's erotic poetry. This is, you know, if you understand some of the metaphors here, lots of talk about gardens and wells, metaphors for uh, female genitalia, the vulva and the vagina, Uh, lots of metaphors elsewhere about ivory tusks, metaphor for... I don't know, ivory, t- no, you know, metaphors for, for male genitalia, for penises, erections, um, lots of celebration of love, of intimacy, uh, of the delight and joy that is to be found in sex and in uh, that kind of intimacy. So uh, to set us up, though, I wanted to start off by thinking a little bit about our culture today. And I want to suggest that there's a, our culture is characterized by a whole bunch of confusion, right? Just a whole bunch of confusion at a whole number of ways. So, so one of the things our culture thinks, and if you, if you stop and think, and I'm, you know, is that uh, there's this sort of feeling that sex is everything. Okay. Now, this is a slightly older demographic than sometimes I've used to speak about this, and you might go only in the rearview mirror. But actually, um, when we look around in our culture, there's this view that it's everywhere, it's everything, it's the most important driving thing in all of the known universe. Sociologists talk about the hypersexualization of our culture and of our young people. Another one of my favorite words is the pornification of our culture. That, you know, the average age when kids are first exposed to pornography, and by this I don't just mean photos of, you know, girls in bikinis, the sort of porn that I grew up with, which was innocent and, you know, but this is hardcore porn. Age 11, kids are first exposed to that on average. So we live in a pornified society, we live in a hypersexualized society, and uh, sex is seen as everything, this massively, overwhelmingly important thing. And, and what that means actually is that. Um, uh, that sexual self-expression becomes a human right because the underlying philosophical framework to shape this is what's called um, uh, individualistic... Oh, actually, I was got that the wrong way around. Um, expressive individualism. And expressive individualism says, I am who I am. My fundamental identity and worth and value is given to me and is affirmed when I express these inner desires that I have. So I am who I am because I express my desires. And this is, most people, when you go down Darling Street after church this morning, you had a cafe and you talked, met someone in a coffee shop, you said, oh, you know, how are you going with your expressive individualism? And you realize this shapes how you do life. They wouldn't really understand that, but that they don't know the technical philosophical jargon doesn't mean that's not the way we live. And you see this in the debate around LGBTI uh, matters, um, because one of the reasons it's so very, very hard to have a calm, thoughtful discussion around gender and sexuality in these areas is that the idea that you might say to somebody, don't express your sexual desires, is seen as, as robbing them of something fundamental to their humanity. Right? So expressive individualism says, I have these desires to be truly human, I must express them. And then what, what people hear from the church is, no, you can't do that. So what they hear is, you are fun, you're violating a fundamental human right. You are denying me something that is essential to the good life, to my good life. So uh, expressive individualism, sex is everywhere. But then you add this truth, 
uh, that in our culture, is it not true that um, uh, sex and violence and abuse are everywhere as well, aren't they? I mean, hypersexualized, pornified, sexual self-expression is everything, and yet the statistics on sexual abuse of women and to a smaller extent of men are horrific and not getting any better. It's everywhere. Uh, this week, I, I mentioned in the email update, I watched uh, 13 Reasons Why. If you have teenagers, it's probably worth at least getting across the narrative of that. You maybe don't want to put yourself through all 13 hours of the Netflix series as I did, but incredibly helpful. And, and all it, it does is amazing job of, sh- of, of holding up a, m- a mirror to our culture and showing us what's wrong. And the central plot revolves around instances of um, sexual abuse, assault, and rape. And there's this poignant moment at the end of this, in the last, and spoiler alert, that needs spoiling, the last series, when they all live happily ever after, only they don't, um, the key male character is walking out of the door of the school counselor who's been chatting and counseling um, Hannah Baker, who's the girl who suicides. And um, Clay walks out and he, he stands at the door of the counselor. So the 13 reasons why are these tapes that Hannah Baker does. Uh, and each tape is uh, relate the story of how one person has let her down. There's 13 of them. These are the 13 reasons why she suicided. The counselor is one of them. Uh, that is a bit of a spoiler alert, but... You know, I'm saving you the pain of watching it. Clay, the male, male protagonist, stands at the door. He looks at this guy right at the end of the show and he says, um, we've got to do better than this. I thought, that's it. The show is saying, in the area of sexuality, the way young women are treated, in the area of sex and power and control, we are a mess as a culture. We've got to do better than this. And our culture says, yes, we are a mess, and it's terrible, but actually has no real answers. And I, what what saddens me and excites me, what saddens me is that actually when you come to Jesus, you see we've got some amazing answers for, for abuse, for violence, for the treatment of women and the mistreatment of women. And we've got some wonderful answers how to embrace sex as wonderful and good and glorious. And what saddens me is so many people just wouldn't even consider looking to Jesus or looking to a church like ours for those sorts of answers. So it's like, yeah, we have it, but no one's listening. And that makes me sad because, as we'll see, this is immensely life-giving. Before we unpack what the Bible says, there's a third thing that's actually being woven woven into all of this, and that is that, um, and it's emerging, Women's sexuality is terrifying, isn't it? I don't know if you realize this, women. It's terrifying. You say, well, surely not here. Just beneath the surface in all cultures, and it rears its head in all the particularly patriarchal cultures, is this view. And we see this in uh, dominant, the majority of teaching in Islam, for example, which is resurgent around the world. How are women's, how is women's sexuality treated in, in much of Islam? Well, the view is women's sexuality is such an overpowering force. Your bodies, your hair is so incredibly powerful that us poor men have absolutely no ability to resist 
the overwhelming power of your sexuality. And so women, that's why you've got to cover up because you can't expect a poor man to see your ankle or your hair and not rape you. So if you are raped, it's your fault because obviously a man can't restrain himself because your sexuality is so overpowering. Now, it's not just in Islam. This, this view often raises itself in, in kind of Middle Eastern patriarchal cultures and um, we see it in lesser degrees here in Australia, don't we? And uh, not in Islam, but we see it in the view, well, you know, uh, in the victim shaming. Well, if she hadn't, you know, been drunk, if she hadn't been wearing a short skirt, if she hadn't been out late that night, and I want to say right up the front, man, the Bible knows no place for that kind of victim shaming. And we need, a, we need an alternative narrative. So Jesus' view, and we'll talk about this if I get around to it towards the end in a little more detail. Jesus says to men, hey men, how you treat women is entirely your responsibility. If you see a woman and you lust after her, then you'd better do something about it, like pluck your eye out. Don't cover the woman up, take responsibility. So, I, so Jesus stands amongst us and says, hey guys, listen, women's sexuality is not that powerful. In fact, Jesus would say, if the most gorgeous sexually available woman walked into your bedroom stark naked and you, you, weren't, uh, and you weren't married to her, you would still be responsible to say no. Isn't that, you know, like, take responsibility. So it's a brilliant... Uh, antidote to this, and I just wanted to put that up there at the start. It's because I think this is something that that's just always lurking beneath the surface, and it's it's taking the responsibility off men and loading it all up onto women. And the Bible knows nothing of that. So uh, I think our culture is confused. We could spend a lot more time in cultural analysis, um, and it's funny actually. The the best it, one of the best little video clips a friend of mine who lives in India shared around this point. Um, we see this also in, um, in the honor killings, uh, acid attacks and so forth that happen in Islam, but also in, in conservative Hinduism and in uh, sort of parts of India. And there was this, this Indian feminist uh, activist and uh, this beautiful clip where she's addressing these men and she says, men, our honor and your honor and the family honor does not reside in our vaginas. Isn't that great? Like, that is such an, impo- I mean, such an important message, right? It's honor. Goodness does not reside in a woman's vagina. Uh, anyway, so I just thought it had a powerful effect on me. And we need, to be, we need to be very affirming of that. So that's what the culture says. What does the Bible have to say? And I want to show you how to think biblically or theologically in a nuanced way about this. And there are four moves Four moves in the Bible and uh, in the story of the Bible. It starts with creation. Uh, So uh, after creation comes the fall. Things get stuffed up. Uh, Then comes redemption. God starts healing. And then comes uh, recreation. God makes everything new. And uh, as we think about women as lovers and the complexity of human sexuality, it really helps to map out and understand how we understand it in the light of these four movements. So, first thing we say, creation, the creation story, Genesis 1 through 11, but particularly 1 and 2. When, in the, as the Bible starts, Adam and Eve are created, and uh, they're naked, they're hanging around the garden, having a great time, 
you know, be going forth and multiplying and filling the earth, and God's there with them. And when God looks at Adam and Eve naked, what does he say about them? And hence, what is his verdict on all sexuality and nakedness? It is very good. It's very good. That's God's verdict. Isn't that awesome? It's really good. Um, uh, For example, God created women with a clitoris. He didn't have to. It's just for pleasure. It's a good thing. And he looks at it and he says, it's very good. Right? Uh, The whole way he has made us, in the totality of our being, God says, it's very, very good. Now, uh, we see, and this has been a theme throughout, uh, throughout this series, at the heart of this creation story, women and men are made for equality and mutuality. And we see this in the, in the way sex works out biblically in God's plan. And here's, I want to make a very, I think quite a, this is something that really occurred to me, quite provocative and powerful statement about this, that because we're made equal in Genesis 1 and 2, in, in a biblical view of sexuality and the way women and men are to relate to each other, in our sexual relating, there's to be an equality of power. Okay? An equality of power and uh, a mutuality of pleasure. According to Scripture. That, that power is to be equally shared in the Bible. And any, any way of construing the Bible or reading Scripture that actually distorts that equality of power actually, I think, does set you up for a distorted view of human sexuality. So uh, in our sexual relating, there needs to be this equality of power. And I think the Bible then, clearly, when you read Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, and you read a number of other texts, there is an equality of uh, a mutuality of pleasure. You see, uh, we are, uh, this is all about, in this text here, uh, it's all about um, embodied intimacy. In the Bible, it's all about embodied intimacy. We're created with bodies and we're made to be intimate and to deeply connect with each other with an equality of power and a mutuality of pleasure. Um, intimacy is the real driver, in, and, and the drive for connection is the real energy and force behind uh, all of our sexual relating. What we see as we go through Genesis and in the rest of the Bible that sexual love is treated as a value in and of itself. We saw that in Song of Songs. There's a celebration of sexual love. But we also see it in um, another one of my favorite verses uh, from uh, Proverbs. And uh, the, the fellow who married us had a habit for years after we were married of quoting this text. He'd get on the phone to me and he'd, uh, he'd quote this text to me. And... Um, This is Proverbs 5, right? It says this to the man in instruction. Drink water from your own cistern. Cistern is a Hebrew metaphor for vagina. Uh, Running water from your own well. Hebrew metaphor for... Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. 
his joy. And the man is responsible for the stewardship of his own sexuality and his own desire. She's a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you be intoxicated with her love. So this is the post-wedding follow-up from my friend. He'd get on the phone and say, Mark, are you rejoicing in the wife of your youth? I'm like, no, I'm on the phone to you right now. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great, glorious, wholesome vision of human sexuality. That's God's intention and God's plan. How you say, well, yes, Mark, that's good. If that's all true, why, did, why do and why did so many of you wince or squirm when I start talking about sex and female anatomy? Why is it that, that there is this residual piece of shame and guilt within us? Another way of putting it is, why is it that we're all wearing clothes this morning? Apart from the fact it's getting a little chilly, but, you know, it's not really... Because, listen... It's not all just good and wonderful and glorious anymore. Genesis 1 and 2 is followed by Genesis 3, which says sin has entered the world and has now polluted or corrupted every bit of our existence, including our experience of women and men and our experience of sexuality. So now, and oh my goodness, don't we all know this, now our sexuality is shot through with shame and guilt. The first thing Adam and Eve do after they've sinned is they look around and they go, I'm naked, cover themselves over, right? And and we've been doing that ever since. Uh, And we need to understand that. It's not that sex is all bad. It's just that this all good thing has now been polluted or corrupted. It's like if you have a stream, uh, uh, a river, and you've got an industrial plant up the top of the river and they throw their, you know, chemical... Uh, off byproducts into the water, it pollutes everything downstream. So there, there's, that's what sin has done. It's introduced shame and guilt upstream, so that now touches everything in our lives. Uh, when I was about 19, I read a great little book by a guy called Scott Peck called The Road Less Traveled. Have any of you read that? Show your age and your wisdom and insight into the world. Yeah, there we go, beautiful. So Scott Peck, really interesting guy. And he had this, I don't remember much about it, but I do remember this one paragraph. It's talking about love and marriage, and I'm 20, and I grew up in a totally dysfunctional family, um, you know, where my dad's, my dad's idea of sex education was saying, oh, Mark, when you're 13, I'll take you to a brothel and show you how it's done. I'm like, thanks, Dad. It's about eight at the time. I'm like, holy crap, please no. Um, so, you know, really messed. And, then, and so then I've become a Christian, and I'm trying to figure all this out, and then I come across Scott Peck. And Scott Peck says this. He says, sex is a problem for everyone. I mean, ha, it's not just me who's confused and messed up. And he says, sex is a problem if you're young or if you're old, if you're married or if you're single, if you're gay or if you're straight. Sex is a problem for everyone. I thought, wow, wow, that's amazing. That was my first. The second thought was, oh, no, that means it's not going to stop being a problem when I'm 25 or I get married, which is what I'd fondly thought. Uh, And it is, isn't it, for all of us, if we're honest. It's problematic. We carry shame or guilt from what's happened to us or what we've done to others. We find sex, if we're married in a long-term relationship, we find that challenging to, uh, to make sex work in a life-giving, healthy, affirming way. The marriage and family therapist, uh, therapist I'm most influenced by is a guy called David Snarch. He's got this massive tome called The Sexual Crucible. 
And what Snarch has taught me, uh, and I found it so profound, is he says, you know, um, in a long-term monogamous relationship, the sexual act is a, is a prism or a window into all the other underlying dynamics going on in the relationship. Very confronting uh, and challenging. And he says, well, this is true. All the research shows, and so if you want to work on your marriage, work on that sexual crucible, and it will unlock all kinds of other good things for you because it's so deep and so profound. You see, we're wired for embodied intimacy, but we're scared of it. We're terrified of it because we're ashamed. And so we, how do we address that shame? How do we deal with it? How do we redeem it? It's problematic for us all. Um, shame and guilt. We see sex uh, post-fall is shot through with the dynamics of power and control that mess up all things. Um, we see uh, that uh, in the church, what, and in our culture, what this results in is, um, is a legacy of St. Augustine, who had many good things to say, but Augustine was fundamentally uh, influenced by Plato with regard to the body, and Augustine's teaching was this, that basically the soul was good, and there was a, it's a dualism, uh, and the body was bad or evil or uncomfortable. Okay, so soul, all good, uh, body, all bad, right? And you can see what he's trying to do, right? He's trying to say the soulish bit fits around the creation, that bit of our sexuality and our lives that are good, but, but all the shame and the guilt that's t tied up to the fall, he goes, well, let's just locate all of that in our embodied nature, in our bodies. And, and that's not right. That's a, that's a Greek dualistic worldview that the scriptures know nothing of. The, the Hebrew scriptures are holistic in the way they s treat us and see us, that we're embodied beings. And yes, there is, there is the, the fall is here. Yes, it, we're shot through with shame and guilt, um, but it's still good. Okay, that's the thing. We've got to keep... It's still good. Right? If, uh, and, and it's the most healing thing ever. So I'm a, I'm a survivor of uh, child sexual abuse. Uh, many, of you, many of you will be as well, or you've had profoundly difficult experiences of sexuality. The healing message from the scriptures is, it's still good. It's been misused and misshaped and destructive, but it's still good. And you've got to think through that because uh, that takes us to the third movement that God is in the business of redeeming this, of healing the world. That's the move that happens with the coming of Jesus. That we see, for example, um, actually in Exodus chapter 20, the Bible says the Lord is a jealous God. And we say, what does that mean? It's the same word that is used to refer to the sexual exclusivity and sexual jealousy and yearning for exclusivity that a husband is to have for his wife and a wife for her husband. So, so actually the Bible starts to unpack and show how this embodied intimacy that we are made for with each other actually is what we're also made for with God, right? So as we're to have embodied intimacy here with each other, so we're to have that with God. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Of course, how does that embodied intimacy get worked out with an invisible God? Well, he gets embodied, doesn't he? <laughs> he takes on flesh and comes to be with us. And then we see in Ephesians 5, a commonly misused for weird reasons, but we'll talk about that uh, later, uh, text. We see in Ephesians 5, uh, it talks all about sexual immorality and all the things that have gone wrong, but then... Verse 21, mutuality and equality submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, and then he says, uh, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up 
for her, verse 28, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. For this reason, uh, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, embodied intimacy. So this is a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. So do you know what? In a, in a really good marriage, where you're having really good sex, what you get in that embodied intimacy on the, on the human dimension is just a glimpse of the kind of embodied intimacy that God wants with us. Free of shame, free of guilt, open to the other, full of self-giving love, completely abandoned to the well-being and delight and joy of the other. That's how God wants to relate to us, according to Ephesians 5. It's a sacramental view of sex, one might say. That sex, embodied intimacy, is given to us by God as a picture of what he wants between us and himself. Now, uh, Ephesians, this, if, if you want to see how this goes, is worked out in a little more detail. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 uh, the Apostle Paul is often talked about in the common culture as anti-sex and anti-women and anti-gay and anti-all kinds of stuff. Not true at all. Uh, here's how this redeemed male-female mutuality and equality and uh, intimacy is worked out. Um, there's a discussion with this church. He's writing a letter to answer them. A bunch of them had said, no, if I'm going to be really spiritual, I'm not going to have sex with my wife. Paul goes, that's nonsense. The husband, verse 3, should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Now, marriage manuals at the day would have been full of instructions for the wife to be sexually available to the husband. But they never would have thought of saying anything about the husband's availability to his wife. Um, and then... Verse 4 is radical. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. This is a redeemed picture of how women and men in marriage can actually love and serve each other with their bodies. Sex is good. It's problematic. But it's being healed. Here's how. Look at God's vision. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time. Why? Why is the only reason in marriage you, you should, if, if your partner wants to have sex, according to Paul, here's a reason you can say, no, honey, I've got to go to church this morning. Sorry. That's okay. You know, then, then you can, you know, so that's good. Then you can get to it over, after lunch. Um, so, you know, the rabbis... And, and our, our discomfort with spirituality and sex is so deep. But you, and, and it's Greek, it's not Hebrew. So the, in, 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 in religious Jewish thought, one of the ways you sanctify Shabbat, you sanctify the Sabbath, is that husbands and wives are to have sex as a religious duty on the Sabbath. So it's, there's no separation between our sexuality and our spirituality, our embodied intimacy with each other and with God, and, and this radical vision of, of mutual, of equal power and mutual pleasure of two people giving themselves without shame or guilt or fear to the other. Um, I, I find this interesting. It's, there's, a, there's a stream, I was doing some research on this, there's a stream of, uh, of ethical thought in, uh, in sort of feminist ethical theory where they talk about one of the ways you judge the, the moral rightness or wrongness of a sexual act is about uh, that, that mutuality and sexual pleasure is an ethical criteria. And I thought, that's just biblical. 
thought that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Matthew 5, uh, we looked at Jesus talking about lust, puts the responsibility for sexual control on the man. Uh, And that's important. Now, with all of this, one of the challenges might be to say, well, what, what happens if I'm unmarried or I'm not in, you know, is it possible to be a whole human being without this embodied intimacy in, uh, in sexual expression? Well, um, you know, Jesus was a virgin. Was he fully human? I think so. I think so. Uh, there's another whole topic for us. One of the, the most, yeah, there's another whole topic for us, how people who are currently unpartnered or not in sexual relationships can live well And so there's two things, two points I need to make for us as a church, two implications. So our mission as a church, the why, what we're here to do is to renew the city of Sydney, to bring a blessing to the city of Sydney spiritually, turning them to Jesus socially, healing the relationships culturally, shaping work and culture and art. So we've got a big vision for what God wants to do through this church in the city. Now, how does that happen? Well, part it has to happen as we redeem uh, our culture's vision of sexuality and start helping them see this is, there are the resources available in the church to live this out. And, and how does that happen? Well, one way it happens is we need to say that it is possible within our community to have your needs for intimacy and connection met between men and women without them necessarily being sexualized. So celibacy, singleness, sexual restraint is actually a livable and option for people which means rethinking dramatically how we do community together, right? There's a, that's another whole story. But it also means, um, and I said this, uh, it, it also means we need to say, do you know what, our own, how you grow and express your own sexuality, and I'm going to talk to the married folk for a moment. If you're married, you are advancing the mission of the church in the city if you have a great sex life. You've never heard a rector say that. So how do you advance the mission of the church? They'd normally say, come to church, put money in the plate, and invite people to Alpha. Well, do all those things and work out in your marriage how all this looks. Our culture desperately needs us to be modeling this and figuring this out and holding out this vision of life to our world. Uh, and in the new creation, this is the final... Uh, the final thing that happens, uh, there is complete healing. Complete healing. The complete eradication. We can look forward to a time when there will be no more shame or guilt, a complete eradication of everything that is wrong with the world. And Jesus says this, you know, there's a phrase in Matthew 22. He's asked a question. He says, you know, in heaven, there'll be no giving or taking in marriage. And, and Augustinian Christians have said, well, you see, the soul's good and we won't have bodies and we won't have sex. Phew! Is that right? Isn't that how you often think of that? We'll finally be freed of that burden, you know, like so many women felt until Viagra came along. And then finally, he stopped pestering me and now we've got Viagra. Oh, you know. Let me tell you how I think it works. Now, the scholars differ on this. What, when Jesus says there'll be no giving or taking in marriage, he's saying, you know what? We're going to go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and only better than that, we're going to be in a place where, it, where, where complete embodied intimacy is possible with everybody all the time. 
because there's no sin. How good will that be? Maybe not so good. Maybe we'll have a different church to be part of when that happens. I don't know. It'll be good. Now, what that looks like in terms of actual sexual activity, who knows? But this fundamental drive we have to be known and to know and to deeply connect and have our souls connect and for that to be wrapped up in bodies, of this I'm utterly convinced that God is creating a world where each and every one of us who are in that world will experience that forever and it'll keep getting better and better and better and better and better because there'll be no more tears, no more fear, no more shame, no more guilt. That's God's ultimate plan for us. Isn't that beautiful? That's what we need to hold out to this world. And that's what we need to hold on to. When you discover, as you will, and when you know, as you do, that sex is still problematic. We're not, we're not, in, we're not there yet. You hold on to that vision. You say, okay, Lord, the time is coming. Frustrating, difficult, shot through with problems now. I only get glimpses of what it could be, but I know there will be a time. It's coming, Lord. Let's pray. Our great God, have mercy on us. Forgive us for the ways we distort and misuse our sexuality. I think as as men, we are particularly prone to abuse of power and control and oppression of women. And that makes me deeply ashamed of my own collusion in that and participation in that and the way the church has participated. So forgive us. Set us free from that. And Lord, work in our church. May this be a a little community where we grasp how wonderful and good it is to live with you, Jesus, as embodied people building bridges of deep intimacy with you and with each other. And we ask all this in your name, Lord. Amen.